Welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's Book. Welcome to this week's episode. This week, I'm going to do another double chapter recording. This time we will do, what would this be, chapters uh, 12 and 13? Let me, I, I should really look this up before I start recording, shouldn't I? Um, let's see here, where are we at? We've had chapter 11, so yeah, this would be chapter 12 and 13. And it will be episode, episode, episode 11, I believe. Do, do. Highlight, highlight, unhighlight. I really need to do this ahead of time. I apologize. Thank you for sticking with me, though. Yeah, episode 11, chapters 12 and 13. Chapter 12 is reporting back, part one. And chapter 13 is founding of Atmo. So chapter 12, reporting back, takes place uh, in the relative future. This is a conversation between James Hall and his professor, former professor, and uh, fellow heroer Tim Fowler. And then founding of Atmo takes place, again, back in the past before the War of Insurrection. Uh, between uh, Eric, Adam, uh, James, Melinda, Claire, uh, Meng, Dandre, and uh, the other one. <laughs> I can't remember her name off right now. We'll come across that as we go. There again, I'm going to do my best to uh, use enough different inflections and voices to make the people uh, obvious, but I will also uh, insert, you know, said this person, said that person, to make it even more obvious, because there will be eight different characters talking in Founding of Atmo. So, uh, with that, uh, just again, as a little intro, this is uh, my podcast where I read Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars, my first novel. I am going to be uh, looking at this and re-editing it to make a second edition of this so that I can hopefully get some representation for it, get it out and get it uh, published. But in the meantime, I'm doing this podcast as a way to get this book some exposure, make it a little more consumable by the greater populace, by more people, because it's much easier to listen to a podcast than it is to read a book. You know, like in the car, at work, that sort of thing. As I know personally, because I listen to podcasts, and that's what made me think of doing this one. But if you enjoy this podcast, then please head over to my website, narclaninc.com. That's N-A-R-C-L-A-N-I-N-C.com. You can find my social media contact information out there. And connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, that sort of thing. If this is your first episode that you're listening to, I encourage you to get the back episodes because this is me reading a book. So, again, this is chapter 12 and 13. You might want to uh, listen to slash read all the chapters from the beginning. And you can do that from iTunes, from your favorite podcast app, or you can head over to narclanning.com where I have linked off the MP3s, so you could download them directly there. Uh, also, something else you could do for me, if you really enjoy this podcast, share it with somebody, share it with a friend, with a family member, force them to sit down and listen to it because it's so awesome. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> you know. And let me know afterward, let me know what you think of this podcast over on Facebook, on Twitter. Any feedback is appreciated. With that, let's get into Chapter 12, Reporting Back, Part 1. So how's it going? Tim Fowler asked me. I chuckled, eliciting a confused smile from Tim. About as well as could be, I guess, I said, my mind trying to bring up highlights of the past few days. How do you mean? Well, 
I began, thinking of all the information I already had. Considering the gaps in what we think we know about Atmo, well, Eric couldn't accurately and consistently make up that much history. He's related so many minute details, ones that we could only have inferred before that, well, it, it's almost too much to take in. So you're fully convinced he is Eric Pullman. After what I had seen, how could I doubt it? Unequivocally, I said, he has to be, which I know means he's nearly 500 years old. He's already shared with me some of what that's been like living that long. There's more yet, though, I said, that he hasn't told me, but he promised to. Like what? Tim pressed. Well, I said, for instance, Martian flora, fauna, and agriculture? That was all Atmo. Tim looked confused. That was the first settlers, the ones that commissioned the first government buildings. Trust me, the records are complete and corroborate that. I'm not disagreeing, I said. I was in that class of years. Saw your research, remember? But what documentation exists on the first settlers? Tim, looking equal parts offended and confused, said, I just told you. Attempting to mollify him, I said, I'm not arguing what you presented, but the records only show legal building permits as issued by the Martian government. That of the settlers. What about the settlers themselves, the first colonists? How did they get here? Tim opened his mouth to speak, but quickly closed it. He leaned back in his chair, stared at the ceiling while clasping his hands and twiddling his thumbs. We have records from the Lunaterran government establishing the legality of the now Martian settlers as part of the Lunaterran government union. We have launch permits from Earth for them. What we have, I said, pulling up some files on my note tab before handing it to Tim, is establishing documents on Mars of acceptance into the Lunaterran government. Likewise, the original land permits exist here in Martian archives, which were later copied and transferred to Earth. All the originals originate from stacks here and stores here, not on Earth. But, Tim said, tipping back forward and resting his forms on the desk, scrolling through the digital copies of the documents I dug up, there was an erasure of files on Earth at the time. It is well documented. An overzealous file clerk, probably an early censor, erased a whole block in which these would have lived. Let me say this. In a movie, we see the hero in a dark room. He says, Gosh, sure would be helpful if I had a light of some sort, I said. He takes a step forward and nearly falls over a torch, a flashlight. You say it's well documented. I say it's well timed. And we've always long suspected that Atmo agents were left on Earth. Who's to say that the clerk was an Atmo rather than a censor? Tim stopped scrolling through my note tab, looking up at me as he bit his lower lip. The underground only ever assumed that Atmo had historical implications before settlement. You're talking about ongoing involvement in Earth after exile. Maybe even now, I said, the thought growing from Tim's comment. You can't seriously think that Atmo is still around, he retorted. Believing that one member of Atmo is still alive, even with the sort of proof you have now, is a lot to accept. To think the whole movement still exists? That's folly. Look, I said, I'm not saying that they're for sure around. It was just a thought, but it's a tempting one, isn't it? What need would there be, Tim said. We're at peace. They, and you know this is even true in the hero sect, they are seen as a weapon of war. What need would there be for their continued existence? Now I leaned back slightly, giving it some thought. Indeed, what need could there be for a weapon of war in a time of peace? My mind couldn't find a reason and quickly found itself going back over what I had seen and heard while at Eric's. For the moment, let's just forget it, I said dismissively. My point, though, is that, and I'm sure of it, that Atmo were the original Martian settlers that it was them who commissioned those first government buildings, and they who started the real permanent settlement of Mars. And you're convinced of this? On what grounds? Tim asked. What he really meant was, where's your proof? Show me your evidence. What artifacts did you bring to convince me? Without great effort, I realized the only tangible scraps of evidence I had so far were the photograph and birth certificate from Eric. It was startling to realize that all I truly had to convince me of what Eric said was his presence. Of course, 
some of what I had seen had convinced me Eric spoke only truth, but how could the description of something as unbelievable as watching Eric literally change before my eyes? Watch his face flash from youth to old age. Listen as his voice sang as a chorus while coming through only as one be described in a believable, convincing way. I knew I would get such evidence, but was at least temporarily forced to admit, based on my gut instincts, Tim, there's more no one would, could understand, but I believe what that man tells me. Well, Tim said, I've admittedly gone on the same thing while researching, a wish and a dream. Just be careful as you go. The head does not cause the tail, nor should the belief cause the proof but one may lead to the other. Of course you're right, I said. Thanks for the reality check. As I said goodbye to Tim, I felt slightly disenchanted. It had been only a short meeting. I dropped in on my way home from the campus's Polk Library, knowing Tim would yet be in his office. His counsel, his admonition, while unsettling, nonetheless was needed as it gave me back a sense of objectivity. That's one thing I almost always lost too easily when I did field research, an objective perspective. It's not so much a flaw as a hurdle I'm constantly running into rather than jumping over, but c'est la vie. Arriving at my place, I entered and closed the door, finding myself suddenly comparing my place with Eric's. Oh, I had knickknacks from various trips scattered about, interspersed with collectibles from Luna and Earth. On my low shelf sat my digital frame, scrolling through pictures of me on trips, work trips, all about and above Mars. My chronometer worked quietly, syncing with the weather grid, giving me the expected forecast for the next month. Blow with the thermostat for my place, tied into the chronometer, kicked on the air momentarily to adjust for the effect of the late-day brilliant sun. I went to my fridge for a beer, but found myself instead craving simple water. Switching my faucet over, I pulled a glass from its cabinet and filled it. Eric kept a pitcher in his fridge. Looking again at my fridge, I realized his must have been a restaurant model, standing a full three meters tall. Mine was a standard one meter. In an age of food synthesizers, who needed the space? Likewise, I suddenly became aware that while Eric had a full stove and oven, I had the standard micro oven. Like a domino hitting its neighbor, I found one realization, one comparison after another striking me. My kitchen, if it could be called that when compared with Eric's, was a mere four cabinets and cupboards, fridge stacked under the food synth under micro-oven at eye level. Both my living room and kitchen, as well as what passed for my dining room, but was really more a breakfast nook, could all have fit into Eric's living room. His furniture, while spartan, was ample and large. Mine, while trendy was minimalist in every way. While Eric's house seemed at first large and empty, it was still warmly inviting. Taken as a whole, my apartment felt busy and overbearing. By contemporary style standards, so it was fairly on the mark. So why did I find myself wanting to change it all? To simplify it? How much of the decorations I had strewn about truly meant something? Of course, they were great conversation starters, but when had I last had someone over with whom I needed to break the ice? Eric's place then seemed intentionally bare. Only what was needed. Why would he need more? He seemed to have become more a hermit than not. A recluse. Such a man didn't often share his personal life and wouldn't need anything about his house that didn't exactly suit him. It was all pertinent to him, and that's what mattered. What, then, did it say about him in a deeper sense? From the Corps' voice, I could at least assume that a certain amount of excess information had been missed by Eric's internal awesome's razor. One of his words, his use of language. Was it all useful, or was some superfluous? My mind whirled dervishly, picking up one question as a pretty rock and then dropping it as another caught its eyes. It did so yet more as I sat, as I had the past couple days, at my desk and attempted to rectify my notes with what I had recorded. Even writing as I did in my own shorthand, I found I missed quite a bit during my and Eric's sessions the first go-around. So, appending my notes and re-listening to our interviews did little, if anything, to calm my mind. Rather, more and more unanswered questions were added to my to-ask list. For instance, Eric had mentioned 
he had been waiting for me for some time. Me specifically, or just someone to whom he could tell his story? Who exactly was Chaos, and how did he fit into the larger framework of the TDF, Atmo, or even Nard Offense? The later the hour, the more existential grew my questions. What yet untold knowledge of humanity had Eric gathered from observation over the past uh, five centuries, basically? What truly would it be like to believe oneself immortal? What temerity would it take as scientists to believe that you could harness the power of the Olympians and place it into humans? I woke with a start to my note tab's alarm. I'd fallen asleep on top of it once more. While it didn't particularly mind, how could it? It was a machine. It had stored that I was generally more amiable after a night's sleep in my bed rather than on top of it and my desk. As it had last night, my note tab had waited a couple of hours hoping I would finish my night's work. The new note tabs, after all, were programmed to usefully facilitate their owners. Mine had been imbued with a natural inquisitiveness for my line of work and even, on occasion, would pose its own probative questions it wanted asked. Gratefully, I placed it near its pad so it could back up and recharge itself. It sounded a soft purr. There were some maintenance issues I should look into with it, but hoped they could wait until after I completed my interviews with Eric. As I lay in bed, I found my mind still busy chewing on details from our interviews. Being as large a hero or geek as I was, I could understand myself going through a certain amount of hero worship as I interviewed Eric Aaron Pullman. But there was more to it. My time under Tim had taught me to be critically inquisitive. Eric seemed to be acting like a catalyst, pushing those ability to new higher and more exacting levels in me. The way he would challenge me, of course, was part of it, but my mind itself, when in his presence, felt as if it were on overdrive. My dreams, too, were filled with bits from our interviews, ranging from my mind's own version of the Battle of Thermopylae, based on Eric's description, to meeting with the other seven original Nanitics in Nars' conference room. I once more woke to my note tab's alarm, this time for the day ahead. I tried to quickly record some more thoughts as well as fragments from my dreams. My note tab, though, was once more acting belligerent, a product of my neglecting its maintenance. I did my best to work past the issues it seemed to be having, though largely failed. I set it to run some simple self-diagnostics as I packed it into my bag. I may have to break during the day and run the necessary maintenance. Too often my above-average ability to procrastinate came back to bite me in the butt. Seeing time slipping away from me, I practically sprinted out the door for Eric's, my mind again racing with a multitude of thoughts ranging from my problematic note tab to what potential treasures and knowledge yet lay hidden in both Eric's mind and his house. That was chapter 12. Uh, what was the title again? It's kind of a long book. I forget sometimes. I apologize. Chapter 12, Reporting Back, Part 1. After I get a little drink of water, we'll start in on Chapter 13, Founding of Atmo. There we go. All right. Chapter 13, Founding of Atmo. So again, I'm going to do my best to try and differentiate the voices in this chapter. Uh, please bear with me. There are like eight different characters. I know that's my own fault, but uh, I will do my best. And uh, please, again, any feedback is welcome. Head over to my Facebook page, to my Twitter, send me a message. Let me know how I could improve what you thought. Here we go. Chapter 13, Founding of Atmo. Let's start with how did you know, James began. Well, that's fairly simple, countered Bang, sipping his scotch as he walked to the table. We began seeing the effects of the Nanites over a year ago. It started with a bad feeling by me on one particular escort mission. We were heading towards the Suez Canal from New Britain on the Royal Queen, a Panama Canal-class freighter. I just couldn't shake the feeling that we were heading into an ambush, despite the fact that sonar showed nothing around us. So I put a call out, coded, on one of the frequencies pirates typically use. Having worked the area long enough, we began to uncover how they coordinated attacks. I used a few key code phrases and got the response... Back off. The Queen's ours. Freighter captain goes to full ahead. I switch frequencies and call for help. The response I get? Nearest ship is 30 minutes out. Well, 
wasn't sure if we had 30 minutes. I step out onto the bridge's observation deck and just stare around me, trying to will the sea to tell me where danger was coming from. I can't really explain what I saw next. I was still looking ahead, but in my mind, I could see fragments of a memory, one I hadn't had yet. I saw which way the two attack boats would approach, so I set to Andre and Jessica toward that direction to snipe. Sure enough, ten tense minutes later, they reported two boats coming at us hard. They estimated eight pirates apiece, heavily armored, mounted fifties on the prows. As a general rule, we avoid deadly force. This time, we made an exception. Dondre and Jessica picked targets while Claire and I readied some of the ship's crew in concealed strategic positions. The two speedboats approached, came in range, and started to see their numbers decline. Quickly. Dondre and Jessica took two out from each boat before they ever even knew what they were meeting with had teeth. Jessica and Andre kept peppering away at the boats as they drew close, their crews now in cover. Claire and I waited with RPGs. My boat led slightly, so I came out of cover, lined up, and took the shot. The rocket sped away, arcing down just right, and caught the one pirate ship amidships. Because of the boat's size, such a hit meant it was going down. The other ship, apparently realizing how well protected we were, turned away, exposing its crew. Andre and Jessica got three more from the boat before Claire's rocket hit home, right through the doors of the wheelhouse. We cruised on, two burning pirate ships in our wake. Calling up the UK Navy boat that was headed our way, I related the incident, advising they pick up the survivors for questioning. They felt it was a better idea to escort us until we arrived in a more secure area. None of us, especially the ship's captain, felt like arguing the point. No one questioned... Neither my setup at the time nor the fact that we were perfectly aligned for an attack, but only from that specific direction. Now, I don't believe in coincidence, as you may remember. So once we got back to the States after the contract was fulfilled, I went into a self-imposed cloister for a while, trying to figure out just what was going on. That initial sense I had of something bad about to happen, combined with the images I had seen of 2B memories of the boats approaching, just couldn't be ignored. I tried to call my mind in order to give clear thought to the matter, but new images kept intruding into my mind. Not like daydreams you might get while, on, while bored, but very real, clear, vivid images. And even while seeing these things in my mind, I would open my eyes, and, and still they were there in my vision. I could turn my head to see the room around me, and images in my head would turn to follow suit. I began to think I was hallucinating to question my sanity. Claire checked me out, gave me a clean bill of health, better in fact than ever. I went to a, let's call him a friend of ours, who has helped us on more than one occasion after a mission that went less than without incident, you know? He did the standard physical as well and got some blood work. He not only confirmed what Claire had told me, but said that based on the panel of results, I was in better shape and better health than a professional athlete at the beginning of a season but the visions would still come unbidden to me. After a couple of weeks of living in confusion, I flipped through some of the old files I had and a news clipping about the Plymouth Marines' last mission fell out. It sparked a train of thought that brought me back to the project. And then I was there. I could see around the base, see the people. I went out to our makeshift uh, HQ, Intel, Hub, Ready Room, and Bar. <laughs> Well, you know, why not? And um, had Andre pull up a live sat image of the base. Wait, a live sat image? I said, interrupting Meg's narrative. How? All of those satellites are government controlled and very highly encrypted. I know. We helped put together a few of the newest ones. Well, that's perhaps a story for another time there, Eric. Anyway, suffice it to say that Andre here has his moments. During such a moment, he planted deep a back door into the satellite CNC network so we could, you know, borrow some live intel every so often. Anyway, as the image came up, I suddenly found myself physically located at our HQ, gazing at a flat panel and feeling very disoriented. On the screen was an image from the base from overhead. Overlaid with it in my mind was the image I was seeing from on the ground within the base, as if I were there. The thing is, they matched up exactly. 
In both places, a blue Mustang was leaving the base. The officer in size, judging from both the car and his uniform jacket hung over the passenger seat, was politely chatting with the gate guard. In the parade grounds, PT was going on, a whole company doing prison push-ups in unison. There, further away from the central base hub, soldiers were practicing on the mortar range. I could hear the thump as the rounds launched, saw them on the sat image as they found their target and detonated. Something clicked within me. I turned to Andre and explained what I was seeing. He said it sounded like a form of projective consciousness. Then I explained about what had happened on our last escort mission. That, he said, was just some freaky stuff. <laughs> it may sound nuts, but I knew then, as I know now, what it is. While I can project myself elsewhere in space, I can do the same thing in time. The two being so closely linked... Meng suddenly seemed lost in thought as he stared at the ceiling while sipping his scotch. You're talking, I began, Meng pointing at me with his free hand exactly as I began to speak, not bothering to turn his gaze from the ceiling. About prescience, about foresight. Basically, you're saying you can see the future. I can see the present. I feel the future, Meng commented. He pointed at James again without looking as James said, But the future isn't set. How is it possible for you to have seen or felt? James added, quoting Meng, where the pirates would come from. I've wondered that too, James. The truth is that seeing the future is a lot like looking for one man lost at sea. There's so much information that small details, the ones you're looking for, are hard to spot. Even so, every so often though, the future is so predictable, so set on hitting one specific goal that you have no choice but to see from whence it came, how it came, and where it ended up, such as with the pirates. So, then does this prescient sense of yours only work some of the time? When events are marching steadily toward a fixed end? Melinda asked. Why don't you ask aloud? Or why, why do you ask aloud when you don't need to in order to find the answer, Meng said, finally lowering his head and looking at Melinda. I, I don't know what you mean, she said, blessing blushing under the intensity of Meng's gaze. Sure you do, he said, leaning forward. You can feel the answers, the knowledge you seek. They don't feel right because they don't reside, don't come from within you. Right now the answer you seek to both your spoken and unspoken, unspoken question lay in here, Meng said, tapping his head. You won't hurt me, he said, so just reach in there and Grab what you're looking for. I, I, I really don't, Melinda began. She's close, Meng, said one of his associates, Claire. Melinda, Meng said in a flat tone that grabbed all of us, made us pay attention. It was the same tone I had heard him use when he called me earlier, interrupting my nap. Reach out with your mind and grab the information you're seeking. Do it. Now. On now, Melinda's pupils completely disappeared, leaving only circles of black within her eyes. Yes, Meng hissed. So, it's not that it doesn't work all the time, Melinda said, as if in a haze, her pupilless eyes fixed on Meng. But just that sometimes it's clearer, easy to see. Like looking through, Meng trailed off. A foggy versus a clear window, Melinda com completed. Th there's so much in your mind. James gently turned Melinda, her gaze remaining on Meng until the last moment when she snapped her head around to fully face James. He seemed to suddenly recoil a bit as though someone had just punched him in the chest. Melinda's brow furrowed as she tilted her head. Why didn't you tell me sooner? James blushed slightly. James, I murmured at him. She's, um, he replied over his shoulder at me. She's searching my mind for herself. Why didn't you tell me you pined after me for so long? Melinda asked, reaching out for James's hands, love washing over her face. Same reason any man waits to say so. I was afraid I would lose you if I said it too soon, 
James pulled her into a warm, passionate embrace. Melinda closed her eyes and buried her head in James's neck. I'm not sure anyone will be able to have a better first full use of her powers than that, Meng said, raising his glass. Melinda and James released their embrace, her eyes opening to reveal their normal mix of iris pupil. Claire, who else? Meng asked sideways toward the red-headed woman directly left of him. That just sparked something bigger in James for sure, she said while scanning her eyes over first James, then me, then Adam. Hers wasn't a cold stare, but a calculating one. It was her gaze, rather than the rest of her features, that made her seem rigid, aloof, even unapproachable. On the street, when she wasn't so intently studying people, she must turn at least a few heads. That one down there is just a mirror, she said, pointing at Adam. All I get from him is myself. Eric here, on the other hand. I look at him and I get the sense that time slows down. She wasn't flirting, but making an assessment report. You're close to a full realization of what your nanites are allowing your mind to do. That's what Claire is telling me, Mang said. I can already see focusing on you, what you're about to discover, but I can only guide you to it. I can't make the discovery for you. Tell me, has anything odd happened to you recently? Focus your mind he said in that same flat tone he had used while talking to Melinda. It was hypnotic and yet commanding. I thought back over the last few days, my mind streaking through memories. I could hear Claire saying something but couldn't make it out. My mind raced. I'd been tired so much that it happened over the last three days seemed strange on its own, and add to that sleep deprivation and the strange crossed over into House of Mirrors weird. Then my mind locked onto one event, walking from my office to the kitchen after my late morning nap. How time seemed to have slowed down, even events presenting themselves to me more clearly. Presently, I heard the clicks and whirs of the ventilator system overhead as the turbine further down the line began to spin up to circulate the air in the room. I could feel a slight change in the surrounding air pressure. Ice clinked slowly in Meng's glass, a low hiss coming from it as trapped air escaped. I'd been staring at the table, but now lifted my gaze as a realization hit me. Meng swirled his drink, a grin still spreading across his face, the ice in his glass dancing about in slow motion. The air kicked on, a cooling breeze slowly filling the room. Everybody's clothes shifted momentarily with the breeze, loose wisps of hair following the breeze before settling back. Claire was ever so slightly lowering her outstretched hand to the table, closing it from a gesture aimed at me. Sunlight slowly blinked on the glass tabletop, my gaze following it to the tree that slowly, very slowly waved in the breeze. There beside it was a hummingbird investigating one of the feeders we had placed on the balcony. I saw each wing flap up and down. I turned back to look at Meng, the smile still spreading across his face, Claire's arm nearly resting on the table. Looking toward James and Melinda, I could see the muscles in James's face contracting as he started to say something. Melinda's pupils dilated and focused, even as no one else's did. Her gaze fixed on me. There was a, a steady, slight pressure on my head then. I turned back toward Meng once more, the scotch still slowly swirling in his glass as he began the process of bringing it towards his mouth. I squeezed my eyes shut, shook my head, and heard James say, What do you mean, there he goes? Melinda coughed, gasped slightly. Wow, she said, that was intense. Meng took a sip of his drink. I looked at James and Melinda. What do you mean, hun? James asked. You could sense all that? I asked her. Yeah, it was like watching an entire movie in Fast Forward, she replied. I furrowed my brow, confused. But that's not how it was for you, was it? She asked. Oh, I could feel the same slight pressure on my head, something tugging at my mind, bringing up what I had just experienced without my willing. It wasn't obtrusive, it didn't hurt, but it could be felt. For you it was like watching, she began. One scene of a movie on super slow-mo, I finished. How? 
the nanites, Dandre intoned. What just happened? James asked me first, then turned to Melinda. That shouldn't be possible, though, I said to Dandre. They're meant to enhance natural abilities. Viewing life like a slow-mo movie isn't a natural ability. No, but heightened situational awareness is something that any soldier can relate to, Meng said. Much like heightened levels of logical inference or perception, Dandre added. I began running through the possibilities in my mind. I, I don't see how that could be, at least not to such an extent, I replied. Let me try something, Melinda said to James. I have a hunch. It's actually rather simple, Dandre said. The nanites act as both a buffer and additional processor in your mind. Now Adam coughed slightly mid-drink. That could work, I replied. What are you, James began to say to Melinda, trailing off. Of course it would, Dandre said. My mind raced through the possibilities. Like eyes do, the nanites would form some sort of false buffer on what's going on around you. Then the other nanites break apart the information and feed it into the same part of your brain, but from different directions and depths allowing for greater simultaneous absorption. The nanites, in that respect, would have created their own separate neural network in your brain to facilitate such transmissions. When they're switched on, so to speak, it turns your two-lane road into an eight-lane-each-way super freeway, but with only your car traveling along it. A lot easier to travel, and the scenery seems to move a lot slower. Relatively. I'm sorry... What's your background again? Adam asked Andre. Community college dropout, military enlistee, thrice stripped of all rank, thrown into solitary twice. Pretty boring stuff, Andre said. He is, though, Meng said. One hell of a shot, and a really stand-up guy in a fight. And he's not too bad at chess, either. Or cribbage, added Jessica, the other woman in Meng's entourage. Or poker, added Claire. So, how did you know all that? Then, Adam asked Andre, slight demanding working its way into his voice. D'Andre's power is the ability to absorb information that was either thought of or spoken around him, replied Meng. Talking's better. The way I understand it, I use ambient thoughts to link to specific knowledge regions in the collective unconsciousness. Once I'm jacked in properly, I have full access to all the stuff there, even the stuff we don't know about yet. James gasped. Melinda, turning to face D'Andre, said, so that means you could be the smartest person on Earth? Eh, only problem with that, though, is my brain's like an old telephone switchboard. Only so many lines for connection. Once the lines are full and I want to access something else, I have to drop a connection. And once I drop a connection, finding it cold again, it's like trying to find a needle in a barn full of haystacks. It's just an NG at that point. James, looking moderately overwhelmed, rested his elbows on the table with his temples in his hands. Wow he said, staring at the table. What did you just do to him? I asked Melinda, looking over her at his hunched back. I planted your memory from just now in his mind, she replied. I would never have thought to use telepathy like that going upstream, Meng said. James looked at me out of the corner of his eye, saying, That is messed up. I can feel exactly, he added, laying his arm on the table as he turned toward Melinda where you stuck that memory too. Feels like my brain's bloated, his eye twitched. Strange thing is that I can get more detail out of the same memory than you did, he said once more turning toward me. I can focus in on the leaves, see their veins, even feel it as nutrients circulate through them. Each tiny minuscule movement is only the last in a huge chain of events, James continued, starting... Beyond tiny particles we don't even have names for yet. It's just one big orchestra of sequences of events as if everything has an exact cause, effect, genesis, and termination. Welcome into the fold, James, Meng said, raising his glass. What are you saying, Meng? James asked, still nursing his head. I'm saying what's obvious. Your powers are manifesting themselves, James. You are what Frank Herbert referred to in Dune as a mentant a human computer, but also so much more. Not only can you see all the connections, but you can also find the ones you need when making further connections and calculations. Can you also detect abilities in addition to seeing the future? Adam asked cynically to Meng. No, 
but to think I can't search with respect to each of you and find out one specific piece of information is naive. It's like searching for the hidden needle with a huge rare earth magnet, Meng replied. Fine. So, James is manifesting. I assume your silent protege down there, Adam said while motioning toward Jessica, has some power too. What, can she see stock futures or something? I wouldn't trifle with her. She'll snap that finger right off, came Meng's reply. Let me handle it, Meng, Jessica said as she leaned forward, resting her arms on the table and focusing on Adam. The air vents had gone silent, but it still felt as though it was getting cold and dark. Adam coughed. Then again, his eyes widened. You can feel it, can't you? I'm not even trying very hard right now. Adam's skin was ashen now, his breath fast and shallow. It's all just a projection, but it feels so real, doesn't it? But fear. Fighting is the only way to defeat memory. Now that we can smother opposition in other ways, ways with more panache. She lifted her finger, looking at it. Adam did the same to his own. Doesn't it itch? Her pupils were black, almost onyx. Even the whites of her eyes lustered darkly somehow. That's enough, Jessica. Meng said, using the same flat tone. The air seemed to warm light, again filtering into the room. Adam fell forward, catching himself on the table as he gasped for breath, seeming as though he had just come from a few hours at the gym. <gasps> what the hell was that? Adam wheezed. A projection. Jessica said, now looking somewhat sheepish. I apologize. I, I didn't mean to get that carried away. Almost... Almost felt as if something was pulling me to do it, fueling it. She's still working her way into her powers, Meng said. She was the last of us to manifest them, and also the last to fully grasp what they could do. That's actually one reason we ended up here. Claire felt that more Nandinic activity was happening somewhere on Earth, and all of us already manifesting meant there were others like us. Working quickly through the possibilities, we came to the conclusion that it had to be you four. Oh, Adam asked, regaining his composure. And how did you track us down? I believe I'd mentioned the other day, and certainly alluded to today, that I have, shall we say, unconventional contacts that can help me get anything I need, Meng said. Anything? Still, though, why track us down in the first place? asked James. For several reasons, chief among them being we know a partnership would be mutually beneficial, Meng said. We find that we are in need of more options when it comes to non-lethals. Other companies have nothing or are unwilling to work with us. We felt that, and especially after learning what we still share, uh, we might be a bit more amiable. Uh, not to mention, of course, the possibility of once more beginning your nanitic research. After all, while one team can protect one ship... Many more travel the seas at the same time, looking for protection. In terms of a funding source, it's a wide-open market. So you have your eye on profit, Adam, cynical, once more. We have our eye on helping others, Meng replied. By others, you mean corporations, Adam said. By others, we mean merchant ships and precious cargo, Meng replied. Do we profit from our services? Yes, because we're effective, but we do it to help. What cargo could be so precious that you would risk life and limb for it rather than for profit, Adam dug? Melinda, Meng said kindly, would you, pointing at his head, I already know Adam won't believe an answer from me. From you, though, he will. There was a slight pleading in Meng's eye, asking for a favor. Okay, Melinda said, obviously uncomfortable with becoming involved in the quickly heated debate. She turned fully to face Meng, her pupils reacting as she searched his mind. Oh, wow, she breathed. It's humanitarian shipments, water, food, building supplies, infrastructure needs. She focused briefly on each of Meng's people. They really do care more for the work than the pay. I haven't spent most of it, D'Andre said. Meng mentioned he had a way he thought we might be able to help more people. That I'm all for. We can help finance the research, help you grow your company, Claire said. We didn't get to know 
each other extremely well at the project, added Jessica, but we're hoping you know us well enough to give us some trust, to believe we're trying to help here, she finished, looking directly at Adam. Does that satisfy your curiosity, Adam? asked Meng. After a pause, so you want to help us grow so we can help you help others, Adam asked. That's about right, Adam, Meng replied. Sounds like a bad insurance commercial or something, Adam grumbled. Adam, James said, think about this. The DOD bid is up in the air. Meng and his people are offering to help us expand, do research, even get back to nanite tech. It's what we've wanted to do all along. What's the downside? Adam scratched his goatee, looking across me at James out of the corner of his eye. I'm just not used to fate smiling on us, Jim. We and Lady Luck haven't exactly been the best of dancing partners, you know. Plus, turning his gaze to Jessica with a slight smirk. I'm still a little shaken up. She blushed a deep red. Adam, I assure you, Meng said, leaning in across the table, using a soft tone of voice as he continued, This is on the up and up. It's for real. The universe is trying to right a wrong here. Adam looked over Meng's crew, then over to us. You guys all think this is a good idea, don't you? He asked. I do, man, I said. It keeps us going. It gives us the chance and resources we need to find out more about what's going on inside of us. They're good people, Adam. You can trust me on that. Don't let their stoic appearances fool you, added Melinda. And your plea, James? Adam asked. No plea, he replied. You know our opinions, and we agreed when founding this company never to take on a project unless all four of us could agree on it. That hasn't changed. It rests on you now. A lot of things could change, and some would if we do this. But that'd be true if the DOD contract came through, too. So? He saw then that Adam wouldn't need much more of a push to commit. Adam again looked toward Jessica. Guess all of us would have to work more closely if we did this, huh? He was silent for a brief moment as all eyes focused on him and his on her. Well, I'm not about to vote myself out of a bigger paycheck, I suppose, Adam said, a smile in his voice and on his face. Sounds like we're all in, Meng said. So, where do we go from here, James? You're the one who can supposedly see the future, Meng. You tell me, James replied. Well, Meng said, feigning exasperation, while putting his hands behind his head. I see an organization united for the betterment of humanity, committed to worthwhile research and practical use of innovations toward the aid of humanitarian ends by way of opposition to terrorist organizations and militant and paramilitary groups, one big cycle feeding back into itself. And if, I began, the DoD contract comes through, we can creatively hide the construction of lab space specifically for the nanite research. When it comes through, added Meng. Pardon? asked James. Oh, it'll come through for you guys. That Henshaw's one strong cookie. She'll whip the appropriations committee into shape, Meng said. You said we'd come away from the meeting disappointed, James said. And you did, Meng replied. I never said it wouldn't come through, he added with a mischievous glint in his eye. Look, we can keep this little partnership silent. If you have the room, we can merge our headquarters into some spare space on your on-campus residence halls out back. Bring us on the books as military consultants and test analysts, you know, that sort of thing. That'll provide us the cover your employees need for our continued presence, as well as our access to restricted and in-production material. This time I spoke up. We've been running everything by the books so far, Meng. We even have a company charter. With names signed at the bottom, yeah, I saw the copy in the lobby downstairs. Look, all I'm saying is there's no need to overly complicate this, especially considering the line of work we're in, Meng added, motioning to his crew. We'll be only as involved with your R&D as you need us to be, and all of you can be as involved as you want to be or not in what we do. Leave it at a handshake agreement as far as that goes, but do whatever paperwork is necessary to legitimize our presence. 
Okay, James said almost automatically. His mind had obviously been churning on Meng's words as they were being spoken. Phrased that way, I can understand and agree with your motives. We all on board with that? He asked. We nodded our assent. James stood up, extending his hand toward Meng. Then, here's our part of that handshake agreement, he said. Meng rose, leaning across the table, and shook James' hand. So, what do we call this merry little band of independent entrepreneurs? James added. Meng, I said, you said such an organization would fight the good fight by pushing back terrorists and militants? Something like that, he said. Then how about the anti-terrorist and militant organization? I said. Atmo, for short. Atmo. I like it, smiled Adam. It has a certain je ne sais quoi about it. It could grow on me, added Meng. Until now, people just called us, hey you. We all laughed. After making some final decisions on merging Meng's crew, Meng's crew's HQ residence with NARS, we exchanged final pleasantries before Meng and his people departed to pack up and move in. And there we have chapter 13, the founding of Atmo. Again, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you enjoyed uh, the content. I hope you who uh, benefited from my attempt to use voices, uh, please let me know. Head over to my website, www.narclaninc.com. It's www.narclaninc.com. On there, you can link up with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, if you so desire. I will be getting my Patreon account information out there. Patreon, it's kind of like an ongoing Kickstarter campaign where you can help keep this podcast going to help fund this podcast so that I can keep doing it for all of you. But please share this with somebody you like, somebody you don't like. That's okay, too. Let me know what you think. And that would be a great help, too. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode, and we will see you back next time. Thank you.